Parts three and four of Tale three of Five Tales by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by David Wales. For Ashurst, the wheel of slumber was wont to turn noiseless and slick and swift. But though he seemed sunk in sleep when his companion came up, he was really wide awake, and long after Carton, smothered in the other bed of that low-roofed room, was worshipping darkness with his upturned nose, he heard the owls. Barring the discomfort of his knee, it was not unpleasant. The cares of life did not loom large in night watches for this young man. In fact, he had none. Just enrolled a barrister, with literary aspirations, the world before him, no father or mother, and four hundred a year of his own. Did it matter where he went, what he did, or when he did it? His bed, too, was hard, and this preserved him from fever. He lay, sniffing the scent of the night, which drifted into the low room through the open casement close to his head. Except for a definite irritation with his friend, natural when you have tramped with a man for three days, Ashurst's memories and visions that sleepless night were kindly and wistful and exciting. One vision, specially clear and unreasonable, for it, he had not even been conscious of noting it, was the face of the youth cleaning the gun, its intent, stolid, yet startled uplook at the kitchen doorway, quickly shifted to the girl carrying the cider jug. This red, blue-eyed, light-lashed, tow-haired face stuck as firmly in his memory as the girl's own face, so dewy and simple. But at last, in the square of darkness, through the uncurtained casement, he saw day coming, and heard one hoarse and sleepy caw. Then followed silence, dead as ever, till the song of a blackbird, not properly awake, adventured into the hush. And from staring at the framed, brightening light, Ashurst fell asleep. Next day his knee was badly swollen. The walking tour was obviously over. Garton, due back in London on the morrow, departed at midday with an ironical smile which left a scar of irritation, healed the moment his loping figure vanished around the corner of the steep lane. All day Ashurst rested his knee in a green-painted wooden chair on the patch of grass by the yew-tree porch, where the sunlight distilled the scent of stalks and gillyflowers and a ghost of scent from the flowering currant bushes. Beatifically he smoked, dreamed, and watched. A farm in spring is all birth, young things coming out of bud and shell, and human beings watching over the process with faint excitement feeding and tending what has been born. So still the young man sat, that a mother goose, with stately, cross-footed waddle, brought her six yellow-necked, grey-backed goslings 
to strop their little beaks against the grass blades at his feet. Now and again Mrs. Narracombe, or the girl Megan, would come and ask if he wanted anything. He would smile and say, "'Nothing, thanks. It's splendid here.' Towards tea-time they came out together, bearing a long poultice of some dark stuff in a bowl, and after a long and solemn scrutiny of his swollen knee, bound it on. When they were gone, he thought of the girl's soft, oh, of her pitying eyes and the little wrinkle in her brow. And again he felt that unreasoning irritation against his departed friend, who had talked such rot about her. When she brought out his tea, he said, how did you like my friend, Megan? She forced down her upper lip, as if afraid that to smile was not polite. He was a funny gentleman. He made us laugh. I think he's very clever. What did he say to make you laugh? He said I was a daughter of the bards. What are they? Welsh poets who lived hundreds of years ago. Why am I their daughter, please? He meant that you were the sort of girl they sang about. She wrinkled her brows. I think he likes to joke. Am I? Would you believe me if I told you? Oh, yes. Well, I think he was right. She smiled. And Ashurst thought, you are a pretty thing. He said, too, that Joe was a Saxon type. What would that be? Which is Joe, with the blue eyes and red face? Yes, my uncle's nephew. Not your cousin, then? No. Well, he meant that Joe was like the men who came over to England about fourteen hundred years ago and conquered it. Oh, I know about them. But is he? Garton's crazy about that sort of thing but I must say Joe does look a bit early Saxon. Yes. That yes tickled Ashurst. It was so crisp and graceful, so conclusive, and politely acquiescent in what was evidently Greek to her. He said that all the other boys were regular gypsies. He should not have said that. My aunt laughed, but she didn't like it of course, and my cousins were angry. Uncle was a farmer. Farmers are not gypsies. It is wrong to hurt people. Ashurst wanted to take her hand and give it a squeeze, but he only answered, Quite right, Megan. By the way, I heard you putting the little ones to bed last night. She flushed a little. Please to drink your tea. It is getting cold. Shall I get you some fresh? Do you ever have time to do anything for yourself? Oh, yes. I've been watching, but I haven't seen it yet. She wrinkled her brows in a puzzled frown, and her color deepened. When she was gone, Ashurst thought, Did she think I was chaffing her? I wouldn't for the world. He was at that age when to some men beauty's a flower, as the poet says, and inspires in them the thoughts of chivalry. Never very conscious of his surroundings, it was 
some time before he was aware that the youth whom Garton had called a Saxon type was standing outside the stable door, and a fine bit of colour he made in his soiled brown velvet cords, muddy gaiters, and blue shirt. Red-armed, red-faced, the sun turning his hair from toe to flax, immovably stolid, persistent, unsmiling he stood. Then, seeing Ashurst looking at him, he crossed the yard at that gate of the young countryman, always ashamed not to be slow and heavy-dwelling on each leg, and disappeared round the end of the house towards the kitchen entrance. A chill came over Ashurst's mood. Clods? With all the good will in the world, how impossible to get on terms with them! And yet, see that girl! Her shoes were split, her hands rough, but what was it? Was it really her Celtic blood, as Garton had said? She was a lady born, a jewel, though probably she could do more than just read and write. The elderly, clean-shaven man he had seen last night in the kitchen had come into the yard with a dog, driving the cows to their milking. Ashurst saw that he was lame. "'You've got some good ones there.' The lame man's face brightened. He had the upward look in his eyes which prolonged suffering often brings. "'Yeah, them's proper beauties. Good milkers, too.' "'I bet they are.' "'Up as your legs better, sir.' "'Thank you. It's getting on.' The lame man touched his own. "'I know what tis myself. Tis a main worrying thing, the knee. I've had mine bad this ten year.' Ashurst made the sound of sympathy which comes so readily from those who have an independent income, and the lame man smiled again. "'Mustn't complain, though. They mighty near had it off.' "'Oh!' Yes, and compared with what twas, tis almost as good as new. They put a bandage of splendid stuff on mine. A maid, she picks it. She'm a good maid with the flowers. There's folks seem to know the healing in these things. My mother was a rare one for that. Hope as you'll soon be better, sir. Go on, there. Asher smiled with the flowers, a flower herself. That evening, after his supper of cold duck, junket, and cider, the girl came in. Please, Auntie says, will you try a piece of our May-day cake? If I may come to the kitchen for it. Oh, yes, you'll be missing your friend. Not I, but are you sure no one minds? Who would mind? We shall be very pleased. Ashurst rose too suddenly for his stiff knee, staggered, and subsided. The girl gave a little gasp, and held out her hands. Ashurst took them, small, rough, brown, checked his impulse to put them to his lips, and let her pull him up. She came close beside him, offering her shoulder, and, leaning on her, he walked across the room. That shoulder seemed quite the pleasantest thing he had ever touched. But he had presence of mind enough to catch his stick out of the rack and withdraw his hand before arriving at the kitchen. 
That night he slept like a top, and woke with his knee of almost normal size. He again spent the morning in his chair on the grass patch, scribbling down verses. But in the afternoon he wandered about with the two little boys, Nick and Rick. It was Saturday, so they were early home from school. Quick, shy, dark little rascals of seven and six, soon talkative, for Ashurst had a way with children. By four o'clock they had shown him all their methods of destroying life, except the tickling of trout, and with breeches tucked up lay on their stomachs over the trout stream, pretending that they had this accomplishment also. They tickled nothing, of course, for their giggling and shouting scared every spotted thing away. Ashurst, on a rock, at the edge of the beech clump, watched them and listened to the cuckoos, till Nick, the elder and less persevering, came up and stood beside him. "'The gypsy bogle zets on that stone,' he said. "'What gypsy bogie?' "'To know. Never zeeny. Megan says they's a zets there, and old Jim zeed at once. He was zettin' there straight before our pony kicked in father's head. He plays the viddle.' Well, what tune does he play? To know. What's he like? He's black. Old Jim says he's all over hair. He's a prapper bogle, and done done come only at night. The little boy's oblique dark eyes slid round. Do you think he might want to take me away? Megan's fear of he. Has she seen him? No, she's not afeard o' you. I should think not. Why should she be? She says a prayer for you. How do you know that, you little rascal? When I was asleep, she said, God bless us all and Mr. Ashes. I heard her whisperin'. You're a little ruffian to tell what you hear when you're not meant to hear it. The little boy was silent, and then he said aggressively, I can skin rabbits. Megan, she can't bear skinning them. I like blood. Oh, you do, you little monster. What's that? A creature that likes hurting others. The little boy scowled. Am only dead rabbits. What's that's eat? Quite right, Nick. I beg your pardon. I can skin frogs, too. But Ashurst had become absent. God bless us all and Mr. Ashes. And puzzled by that sudden inaccessibility, Nick ran back to the stream where the giggling and shouts again rose at once. When Megan brought his tea, he said, "'What's the gypsy bogle, Megan?' She looked up, startled. "'He brings bad things. Surely you don't believe in ghosts. I hope I will never see him.' "'Oh, of course you won't. There aren't such things. What old Jim saw was a pony.' No, there are bogies in the rocks. They are the men who lived long ago. They aren't gypsies, anyway. Those old men were dead long before gypsies came. She said simply, they are all bad. Why? If there are any, they're only wild like the rabbits. The flowers aren't bad for being wild. The thorn trees were never planted, and you don't mind them. I shall go down at night and look for your bogey, 
and have a talk with him. Oh, no, no! Oh, yes, I shall go and sit on his rock. She clasped her hands together. Oh, please! Why, what does it matter if anything happens to me? She did not answer, and in a sort of pet he added, Well, I dare say I shan't see him, because I suppose I must be off soon. Soon? Your aunt won't want to keep me here. Oh, yes, we always let lodgings in summer. Fixing his eyes on her face, he asked, would you like me to stay? Yes. I'm going to say a prayer for you tonight. She flushed crimson, frowned, and went out of the room. He sat cursing himself till his tea was stewed. It was as if he had hacked with his thick boots at a clump of bluebells. Why had he said such a silly thing? Was he such a towny college ass like Robert Garton, as far from understanding this girl? Ashurst spent the next week confirming the restoration of his leg by exploration of the country within easy reach. Spring was a revelation to him this year. In a kind of intoxication he would watch the pink-white buds of some backward beech-tree sprayed up in the sunlight against the deep blue sky, or the trunks and limbs of the few scotch firs, tawny in violent light, or again on the moor the gale-bent larches which had such a look of life when the wind streamed in their young green above the rusty black underboughs. Or he would lie on the banks, gazing at the clusters of dog-violets, or up in the dead bracken fingering the pink transparent buds of the dewberry, while the cuckoos called and yafes laughed, or a lark from very high dripped its beads of song. It was certainly different from any spring he had ever known, for spring was within him, not without. In the daytime he hardly saw the family, and when Megan brought in his meals, she always seemed too busy in the house or among the young things in the yard to stay talking long. But in the evenings he installed himself in the window-seat in the kitchen, smoking and chatting with the lame man Jim or Mrs. Narracombe, while the girl sewed or moved about, clearing the supper things away, and sometimes with the sensation a cat must feel when it purrs, he would become conscious that Megan's eyes, those dew-gray eyes, were fixed on him with a sort of lingering soft look which was strangely flattering. It was on Sunday week in the evening, when he was lying in the orchard listening to a blackbird and composing a love-poem, that he heard the gate swing to, and saw the girl come running among the trees with the red-cheeked, stolid Joe in swift pursuit. About twenty yards away the chase ended, and the two stood fronting each other, not noticing the stranger in the grass, the boy pressing on, the girl fending him off. Ashurst could see her face, angry, disturbed, and the youths, who, who would have thought that red-faced yokel could look so distraught? And painfully affected by the sight, he jumped up, they saw him then. Megan dropped her hands and shrank behind a tree-trunk. 
The boy gave an angry grunt, rushed at the bank, scrambled over, and vanished. Ashurst went slowly up to her. She was standing quite still, biting her lip, very pretty, with her fine dark hair blown loose about her face, and her eyes cast down. "'I beg your pardon,' he said. She gave him one upward look, from eyes much dilated, then, catching her breath, turned away. Ashurst followed. Megan, But she went on, and taking hold of her arm, he turned her gently round to him. Stop and speak to me. Why do you beg my pardon? It is not to me you should do that. Well, then, to Joe. How dare he come after me? In love with you, I suppose. She stamped her foot. Ashurst uttered a short laugh. Would you like me to punch his head off? She cried with a sudden passion, You laugh at me, you laugh at us. He caught hold of her hands, but she shrank back till her passionate little face and loose dark hair were caught among the pink clusters of the apple blossom. Ashurst raised one of her imprisoned hands and put his lips to it. He felt how chivalrous he was and superior to that clawed Joe, just brushing that small, rough hand with his mouth. Her shrinking ceased suddenly. She seemed to tremble towards him. A sweet warmth overtook Ashurst from top to toe. This slim maiden, so simple and fine and pretty, was pleased then at the touch of his lips. And, yielding to a swift impulse, he put his arms around her, pressed her to him, and kissed her forehead. Then he was frightened. She went so pale, closing her eyes, so that the long dark lashes lay on her pale cheeks. Her hands, too, lay inert at her sides. The touch of her breast sent a shiver through him. Megan, he sighed out, and let her go. In the utter silence a blackbird shouted. Then the girl seized his hand, put it to her cheek, her heart, her lips, kissed it passionately, and fled away among the mossy trunks of the apple trees, till they hid her from him. Ashurst sat down on a twisted old tree growing almost along the ground, and, all throbbing and bewildered, gazed vacantly at the blossom which had crowned her hair, those pink buds with one white open apple star. What had he done? How had he let himself be thus stampeded by beauty? Pity, or just the spring? He felt curiously happy, all the same, happy and triumphant, with shivers running through his limbs and a vague alarm. This was the beginning of what? The midges bit him, the dancing gnats tried to fly into his mouth, and all the spring around him seemed to grow more lovely and alive. The songs of the cuckoos and the blackbirds, the laughter of the yeflies, the level slanting sunlight, the apple blossom which had crowned her head. He got up from the old trunk and strode out of the orchard, wanting space, an open sky, 
to get on terms with these new sensations. He made for the moor, and from an ash tree in the hedge a magpie flew out to herald him. Of man, at any age from five years on, who can say he has never been in love? Ashurst had loved his partners at his dancing class, loved his nursery governess, girls in school holidays, perhaps never been quite out of love, cherishing always some more or less remote admiration. But this was different, not remote at all. Quite a new sensation, terribly delightful, bringing a sense of completed manhood, to be holding in his fingers such a wild flower, to be able to put it to his lips and feel it tremble with delight against them. What intoxication and embarrassment! What to do with it? How meet her next time? His first caress had been cool, pitiful, but the next could not be, now that, by her burning little kiss on his hand, by her pressure of it to her heart, he knew that she loved him. Some natures are coarsened by love bestowed on them. Others, like Ashurst's, are swayed and drawn, warmed and softened, almost exalted, by what they feel to be a sort of miracle. And up there, among the tors, he was racked between the passionate desire to revel in this new sensation of spring fulfilled within him, and a vague but very real uneasiness. At one moment he gave himself up completely to his pride at having captured this pretty, trustful, dewy-eyed thing. At the next he thought with factitious solemnity, Yes, my boy, but look at what you're doing. You know what comes of it. Dusk dropped down without his noticing. Dusk on the carved Assyrian-looking masses of the rocks. And the voice of nature said, this is a new world for you. As when a man gets up at four o'clock and goes out into a summer morning, and beasts, birds, trees stare at him, and he feels as if all had been made new. He stayed up there for hours, till it grew cold, then groped his way down the stones and heather roots to the road, back into the lane, and came again past the wild meadow to the orchard. There he struck a match and looked at his watch. Nearly twelve. It was black and unstirring in there now, very different from the lingering, bird-befriended brightness of six hours ago. And suddenly he saw this idol of his with the eyes of the outer world, had mental vision of Mrs. Narricombe's snake-like neck turned her quick, dark glance taking it all in, her shrewd face hardening, saw the gypsy-like cousins coarsely mocking and distrustful, Joe stolid and furious, only the lame man Jim with the suffering eyes seemed tolerable to his mind. And the village pub, the gossiping matrons he passed on his walks, and then his own friends, Robert Carton's smile when he went off that morning ten days ago, so ironical and knowing. Disgusting! For a minute 
He literally hated this earthy, cynical world to which one belonged willy-nilly. The gate where he was leaning grew grey, a sort of shimmer passed before him and spread into the bluish darkness. The moon! He could just see it over the bank behind, red, nearly round, a strange moon. And turning away, he went up the lane which smelled of the night and cow-dung and young leaves. In the straw-yard he could see the dark shapes of cattle, broken by the pale sickles of their horns, like so many thin moons, fallen ends up. He unlatched the farm gate stealthily. All was dark in the house. Muffling his footsteps, he gained the porch, and blotted against one of the yellow trees, looked up at Megan's window. It was open. Was she sleeping, or lying awake, perhaps, disturbed, unhappy at his absence? An owl hooted while he stood there peering up, and the sound seemed to fill the whole night, so quiet was all else, save for the never-ending murmur of the stream running below the orchard. The cuckoos by day, and now the owls, how wonderfully they voiced this troubled ecstasy within him. And suddenly he saw her at her window, looking out. He moved a little from the yew-tree and whispered, Megan! She drew back, vanished, reappeared, leaning far out. He stole forward on the grass patch, hit his shin against the green-painted chair, and held his breath at the sound. The pale blur of her stretched-down arm and face did not stir. He moved the chair and noiselessly mounted it. By stretching up his arm he could just reach. Her hand held the huge key of the front door, and he clasped that burning hand with the cold key in it. He could just see her face, the glint of teeth between her lips, her tumbled hair. She was still dressed, poor child, sitting up for him, no doubt. Pretty Megan! Her hot, roughened fingers clung to his. Her face had a strange, lost look. To have been able to reach it, even with his hand. The owl hooted, a scent of sweet-briar crept into his nostrils. Then one of the farm dogs barked. Her grasp relaxed. She shrank back. Good night, Megan. Good night, sir. And she was gone. With a sigh he dropped back to earth, and sitting on that chair took off his boots. Nothing for it but to creep up and go to bed. Yet for a long while he sat unmoving, his feet chilly in the dew, drunk on the memory of her lost, half-smiling face and the clinging grip of her burning fingers, pressing the cold key into his hand. End of Parts 3 and 4